cannot have a love mashup without this song. It's the greatest. I've listened to this like 20 times this week. She does that high note in a bit. So good. All right, we don't have to keep going yet. <laughs> or we could keep going since we already had a comic, a, co- a comedian, com- comic routine, comedy. That's not funny. Oh. Uh, so, God and love, it, it, they, have, they have a strange relationship in popular culture. In, sense, in a sense, everybody believes God is loving. Even people who don't believe in God believe that if there is a God, that God must be loving. In fact, that's one of the arguments against God, is that if there is a God and he's loving, then why is everything so miserable, right? He can't be loving if he's powerful. He can't be powerful if he's loving. And at the same time, I think that God is like one of the most, or the love of God is one of the most accepted or acceptable Christian doctrines that exist. God's anger and justice can be contentious or less popular The Trinity and Jesus' deity and humanity can be complicated, mysterious, and difficult. But love we all agree on, and yet it is also deeply misunderstood. Because we often put God's love or describe God's love in our own terms and don't yield to the scriptures. So we require of God an unconditional love whose condition is that it agrees with our conditions of love. So most, like lots of things, we tend to make, not just God, but God's love in our image. Two weeks ago, we read through the whole bit of chapters 9 through 11 and spent time just trying to soak it in. Next, last week, we looked at, did God's plan fail? And next week, we'll look at the question, who exactly are God's people Today we're going to talk about God's love. Under the purposely provocative question, does God love everybody? It is a question that comes in mind as you read Romans 9 through 11. I want to say from the get-go, I've learned a lot from a book here, um, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. And uh, he had five categories, I moved him to four, and, but I, 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 I rely on him on, this, on many of these things. But I wonder if even how we're asking the question, we're talking about God and love, even asking the questions, what does it stir up in us? Is the question even offensive to you before we start? Or is it like you're ready for an answer? Part of me wants, of course, to say God loves everybody. It's, it's an easy answer and leave it at that. But Romans 9 through 11 and the scriptures themselves have a more nuanced, mysterious, and beautiful answer to that. And I also think that I, I want to avoid two kind of common errors Confusing that God is love with love is God, and a kind of, which is kind of an uncritical look um, at some of the hard passages in the Bible. But the other is that, in, in some hyper um, reformed, that's our tradition, evangelical spaces, um, 
some types, like they, they struggle with even being able to say things like God is love you because of issues of predestination and things like that. And so I want to avoid these kind of, um, these kind of difficulties on either side. And it's really important because we have to come to grips with who and what kind of character God has, who he is and what kind of character he has. Michael Reeves is a, 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 has this great book called Delighting in the Trinity. Um, and then I think I have the other one too. Delighting is just a great book. And then I think I already did the D.A. Carson one. Yeah, okay. So and in it, he says that um, in the end, it will all depend on what you think God is like. Who God is drives everything. So what is the human problem? Is it merely that we have strayed from a moral code? Or is it something worse, that we have strayed from him? What is salvation? Is it merely that we are brought back as law-abiding citizens? Or is it something better, that we are brought back as beloved children? What is our Christian life about? Mere behavior? Or something different, enjoying God. And then what our churches are be like, our marriages, our relations, our mission are all molded at the deepest way by what we think of God. And so what we're going to talk about today is God and his love or his loves. And we're going to go through four loves, not the C.S. Lewis incredible book, but um, four loves. And the first one we'll call um, Trinitarian love. It's actually God's love for the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Spirit, the Spirit's love for the Son, the Son and the Father. I, I'll mess up if I keep going. God loves himself in all the right ways that we can think about it. Now, that's not a big concentration in 9 through 11, but John talks about it a lot. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Talks about the, 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 the love of the Father, Jesus, that he's, he's been shown, is showing to us. It's this expressed, this love expressed in a relationship of perfection between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, untarnished by sin on either side. This is the Trinitarian love. It gives us the categories of how to relate to God ourselves. And it makes, it, makes you wonder and excited. Like, uh, there's, God wasn't lonely. He, 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 he's been loving for a long time. He knows how to do this. And the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit for eternity past. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for God at all. It's actually part and parcel of his character, of the root of who he is. But it's also a little bit strange for us to access, if you are reminded. It's strange because um, this love doesn't require uh, forgiveness granted or received. It doesn't require redemption of the son, right? It's, not, it's a lot different than where there's no, there's no rebellion in the, in the trinity to be fixed. And so it feels a little bit ethereal, a little different for us. And yet it is at the core of who he is. So the second one would be providential love or in providence. Providential love is, is, is his care for and sustaining of all his creation, including all creation, including his people. It says that, you know, the scripture says the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. There is a kindness and a, 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 a providence uh, about that. It's an extension of his governing the world 
and it is born out of love. It's tied to a Trinitarian love because he created the universe out of his love. It's an fl- overflow of the love that the Trinity has to share in it. So it's also at the root of who we are and of what all creation is. But not just all of creation. Um, well, all of creation for sure. And it's, um, uh, the, the, our confession says that, uh, that we live by his most holy, wise, and powerful, powerful preserving hand or power or guidance or governing. And that's born of love. Reeve says, indeed, in the triune God, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. There is something gratuitous about creation, an unnecessary abundance of beauty through its blossoms and pleasures. We can revel in the sheer generosity of God. The birds of the air find food. None of his sparrow can fall without the sanction of the Almighty. Every day a child is born, it means that God's providential love is at work. Hope is still for the world. We live in the year of the Lord's favor. He has stayed his hand of judgment and he is offering, clearly offering his love every day. He has a providential love for his creation, even amid tragedies, even amid the circumstances we suffer, even when there are landslides that destroy water sources. God has a providential love for his creation, including us. And yet, there is a kind of affective love, an affectionate love for all of humanity as well. God's redemptive posture toward his fallen world is one of love. For God so loved the world. In fact, he so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves people who don't love him, who hate him. He loves the world who has rejected him. Even in verse 28 of our, of our uh, passages say, as regards the gospel, and this is in chapter 11, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The people who are presently rejecting Messiah are still beloved for the sake of their forefathers. There's some form of love, some experience of love that is there. It's what he does in Romans 2. Do you not presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, also love, is meant to lead to repentance? Even though you're outside, God is being kind to you being kind to the world, being loving so that the people will repent. Or in Ezekiel 33, 33, 11, he says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Pastor John Piper says, I conclude that there's a real sense in which God has extended great kindness and goodness and patience and invitation to the whole unbelieving world of mankind. But if you need no other proof from that, just look at our Lord Jesus himself. This amazing moment when someone says, hey, how do I get eternal life? He says, you lack one thing. 
Sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. And what happened to that man? He walked away. Do you know what it says about Jesus' affection for him beforehand? Who would reject him? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said. He loved even the one who would walk away from him. Now, there is another set of love. And because of issues of God's anger and judgment that are real, I heard a famous pastor once say, with great applause of his congregation and a great fame in his national following, it was in one sense a sermon that put him on the map. He said at one point in the sermon, God doesn't love you, he hates you, unless you come to Jesus. And I understand the rhetorical move here. I understand what he's trying to accentuate in terms of judgment and wrath that are real. But the glee in his tone, the arrogance in his manner were profoundly troubling. Not to mention the complete lack of biblical nuance like we're trying to do now of God's affection towards humanity. And that the wrath of God, his anger, is actually born of a deeper and true love of how much he hates sin in us, from us, within us, as us. So there is this affectionate love too. And yet, the problem arises when folks go beyond scripture and infer that those statements about God... because of his love for all people, cannot mean that he has a different kind of love for his own. In other words, they infer that since he loves all, he must love all in the same way. That he cannot choose to love some in a focused, powerful, electing, redeeming, adopting, and eternal way. And yet it seems exactly what Romans 9 through 11 teaches us. Does God love everybody? Yes. Does he love everybody in the same way or to the same extent? No. We will call this saving love. Now I should say something right off the bat there. The distinctions in these loves are not in any merit of our own. If anything else is clear in 9 through 11, that is true as well. The distinctions of these loves are in the mind and heart of God himself. So the fourth way of speaking of God's love is unlike the previous three. But Romans 9 through 11 is exposing, um, you know, like, and it's exposing of whether God's plan has failed or not. They're wrestling with these, this, this affection love and this, this saving love. That's what he's doing. He's trying to put those and parse those out a little bit for us. Because you have this incredibly difficult quote, right? Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. And yet I know this is shocking to our ears, and it is. It's, it's, it's a rhetorical move that does bring shock to our ears. But it's, it's saying the same thing as when Hosea, when, when Paul quotes Hosea, it says, Those were not my people, I will call my people. And who was not beloved, I will call beloved. There is an adoptive saving love that has been for one group of people and not another. Now, to speak of this Esau-hated language, this, this is called a, this is um, reasonably normal within um, the, the 
the language and the, the style of writing at the time. It, it's, a called a, it's a contrast in the Semitic language. Hate here is not so much about God's emotional stance. It, it's not really talking about that. I'm not even speaking to that. But it's this rejection of Esau in relationship, by contrast, to his, um, his, his love and affection and his, the difference of how he's chosen Jacob. That's what's kind of going on. It's a little bit like, like in, um, in Revelation, um, did you, you've, you've heard before, and there will be no sea. That doesn't mean that you, well, and especially if you're from Hawaii, that doesn't mean there's no ocean. It means that the tumult of the sea, the dangers of the sea, the, the, the hardness of the sea, the, 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 the death that can come from the sea, that's all gone. It doesn't mean there's no water or surfing, clearly. God made waves. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that. But don't, just because that's true, don't, don't, it doesn't get away from the fact that God's love is peculiar and directed toward his own people. It doesn't let that off the hook just because the contrast is there. God has chosen, sets his love on his people in a distinct and different kind of way. Paul calls this a great love in Ephesians. It raises us from the dead kind of love. It's an elective, regenerating love, a preserving love that will, be, that, that will have us be loved forever. A divine and glorifying love. A love for those who he will redeem. And this is a consistent testimony within the scriptures. A lot of times we, it's easier to swallow in the Old Testament, but in the New, and I don't know why, but it just seems like it. It's kind of, you just say it's Old Testament, but it doesn't really matter. New Testament says the same kind of stuff. I am praying for them, Jesus says. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. So there's this unique love relationships up there. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. You see, there's this distinction again. There is a sense in which his saving grace is, um, is proclaimed to all, but there's a special application, a rescuing love that is effective for those who would believe. Now, it's a dynamic relationship for those who believe you become his children. And so, you know, Paul's able to say something like, note then the kindness and the severity of God. God's severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in kindness. We stay in his love. We abide in his love. And yet, and you can say this, we work to attend to his love, but we never lose our identity as the beloved. This is a love that will not let us go. This is a love that has reached down and plucked us from the mire. This is a love that has compelled the Son to leave glory. And, and, and this utterly loving, perfect relationship by themselves with the Father and Spirit and become one of us. I know they still love each other when he's on earth. I know that. Though without sin, he came and served a sinful world out of love. But he had in his mind... With every intentional drop of his blood was for those he would save. 
That one drop of his blood is powerful enough to cleanse the universe, to appease God's anger and to forgive our sins of the whole cosmos. But more importantly, it was a love that had a powerful intent to bring a people to himself, to enter into the love of Christ. As we've walked through these loves, I want to have some, um, I don't know if there are applications or things to attend to. But if it's true, how we think about God's love or how we think about God, God forms everything else. I'm asking you to consider seeing one of God's core identities, if not core identity, as a lover. God has other things too. But I think one of the muscles we need to grow in is to think of him as a lover. If God is just a ruler, then our real problem is that we break the rules. And so that salvation becomes forgiveness from breaking the rules and treating me as if I had kept the rules. But that's not exactly how that works. My relationship with him can be little better than a relationship with a cop, a police officer, if that's the case. Michael Reeves puts it like this. If a good police officer were to catch me speeding and so breaking the law, I would be punished. If he failed to spot me or I managed to shake him off after an exciting car chase, I would be relieved. But in neither case would I love him. And even if, like God, he chose to let me off the consequences of my law-breaking, I still would not have to love him. I might be grateful, and that gratitude might be profoundly deep. But that's not exactly the same thing as love. And so it is with this, if it is if it's a divine policeman. If salvation simply means him letting me off and counting me as a law-abiding citizen, then gratitude, not love, is the main thing. And that puts in question the greatest command, which means the greatest offense, which is to love your Lord, your God. And he's restoring us to, our, to, to receive and experience that love. And so love is at the core of identity of who he is. Do not forget that, that, that the Apostle John actually thinks it so much to the core of his identity that he says that God is love. And the categories I'm trying to bring forth this morning, they're simply facets of his unified love. They're not categories per se. They, the categories are for you to have like a kaleidoscope so that you can see the beauty of it as a whole. We're not supposed to just like pick these out and divide them out as we will. God's not disunified like that. They, they, they're distinct, but... Um, God's love nor his character is, is actually divisible. These are mysteries for our feeble minds that we don't always get. And I don't want you to over-concentrate on one or the other because things start getting wonky with there. I was reading a review of, a pastor, uh, of, of Carson's book from a pastor in Charlotte, and he said, if God's love is defined exclusively by his Trinitarian love, and that's all there is, which is perfect and unblemished by sin, we won't grasp the glory of him loving rebels like us. If we just concentrate on nothing but the providential love, we'll struggle to see why there's a need for the gospel at all because he just loves and the fall is kind of irrelevant and all that other stuff. If, we, if, we, um, if God's love is solely seen as this kind of affectionate love 
and kindness to the world. We'll end up having this kind of emotionally charged, sentimental deity who doesn't display the power and the effectiveness of his pursuit of rescuing people. And we'll avoid a lot of hard passages in the scripture that are, that are just like, hey, this is here. But he also says, if God's love is only the adoptive or saving love that we concentrate on, we'll too easily start trying to figure out who's in and who's out. And worst of all, we're going to find out who we're supposed to hate. It can be very, very unhealthy. To, so don't sit around here and fuss about this with each other. Carson himself says, any one truth about the love of God pressed to the exclusion of the others will make for a distorted deity and a deadly discipleship. The person that I told you about who said God hates you to his 8,000 member church. The history of his arrogance continued to the point where his own elders asked him to step down. He was just living in this space, this concentration of this only type of love that had to go from hate to love, this only fourth category that really became deadly discipleship for him. I think of Teresa of Avila. I cannot understand how humility exists without love or love without humility. So please don't let your minds conjure God sitting around toggling between these four facets of things and like he's bound by the categories that D.A. Carson came up with or something, you know. He's not mulling over each day how he's going to interact with it. That's just silly to think about, and we don't need to be doing that either. And the fact is that God's love, God loves everyone, and he doesn't love everyone if you mean it that way. He loves the world, and he will judge it. He can't possibly love his adopted children any more than he does. And he gets profoundly grieved by our sin. It's a kaleidoscope, not a set of categories. The challenge is not first to explain how the Bible provides warrant for all these statements and how they fit together so you can have a neat theology. That's an offering, that's a gift, that's wonderful. But the purpose of this is to live in light of them being true. It's not about you walking around trying to discern what it is each and every time. It's to actually live in the beloved as the beloved. That's the purpose. Friends, the answer to this question is to, does God love everyone? The answer is, hey, do you want to know the incredible adoptive saving love of God? It's found in Christ Jesus. That's the answer. The love of God is found in Christ Jesus. Let that part blow your mind because here's what's really crazy about this to me is that, is that this saving love is actually re-entering into the Trinitarian love because what you are is taking on and having your life hidden in the Christ himself. And now you participate in the Trinitarian love, the perfect, unending, from beginning to end Trinitarian love. That's a mind-blowing reality. Are you kidding me? It means you're loved because God loves his son more than anything. And you live your life in his son. Does God love everybody the same way? No. But tell you what, bend your knee to Jesus and participate in the most eternal, beautiful love ever.
God the Father loves God the Son. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are found hidden in the Son. Let's pray.